Welcome to another episode of Courtesy Of, a podcast channel that accompanies the Adam Art Gallery's exhibition program. This episode features artist Rachel Shearer and co-curator Sue Ballard discussing the sound installation Te Oro o Te Ao, a multi-channel sound work in the 2022 exhibition Listening Stones, Jumping Rocks. Tēnā koutou katoa, nō mai, haere mai, kei tēnei ko rero rero, ko su bala toko inoa, kei tāhuhu korero toi aho e mahi ana. Nō rera, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Welcome everyone to this conversation. My name is Sue Ballard and I'm one of the co-curators of Listening Stones Jumping Rocks. And I'm here today with Rachel Shearer, one of the artists. Rachel, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, kia ora, uh, kia ora kia koe, um, Sue, for having me on here. And uh, kia ora koutou uh, to everyone out there. Um, ko Rachel Shearer, tako ingwa. Um, I'm an artist. I'm based in Tamaki, Makoto, Auckland. Um, I've got the work Te Oro o Te Ao, which is installed at, in the exhibition. And um, I'm here to discuss the work with Sue today. Awesome. So do you want to start by maybe describing the work? Maybe start with the title. Yeah. So um, Te Oro o Te Ao, so Te Oro is to resound or echo and resonate and um, te ao is, is kind of the earth, the globe. It's also daytime. It's also clouds. But I was really the whole, um, this work is really about a close listening to the earth and listening through both uh, Māori and also through kind of Western um, practices, I guess, uh, through philosophies and practices. And um, so the idea was that uh, in terms of listening to the earth, that it was listening to the the, the resounding, the echoes, uh, because a, a lot of it is made of field recordings, which are then processed, uh, but also interpreted as well. So in this way, they're kind of echoes of the sounds, of the literal sounds of the earth. So that's where the titles come from, Te Oro o Te Ao. So the field recordings, like often when we think of field recordings, we're recording atmospheres, we're recording the things that surround the earth. But you do something slightly different with that, don't you? You actually record in the earth? That's right. When I was thinking about listening to the earth, um, I was really thinking about its processes as well as, you know, inside it. I mean, there was a lot of things going on, but in terms of the actual (laughs) field recording, I worked with hydrophones, uh, which I could bury uh, in sand or put, you know, into water or inside different situations. So inside the earth to record. But there was also uh, recording spaces and then interpreting what the recordings were. So I recreated what the field recordings were, uh, sometimes with different kind of instruments or, or material objects to create a kind of an idea um, to take, yeah, sort of perceptions of what those, of, of the particular space to take it another step. So it's not just about a finding an exact kind of truth for the earth. It's not a process of truthing. It's a process of kind of interpreting, expanding, finding relationships. Absolutely. You know, because our listening is always so subjective. So mm-hmm. um, through the process, I guess I was exploring um, 
this whenua, Aotearoa, or the mm-hmm. specific places that I was engaging with, through that, thinking about what is sound, what is materiality, through Māori frameworks of, um, uh, well, I guess, yeah, ontology you know, <laughs> is the word, <laughs> and how we understand what, the, you know, what reality is, what things mm-hmm. are, and the knowledge frameworks around that but also relating to Western thinking around these ideas as well. And it's quite personal because I was really looking at um, the you know, idea of whakapapa. Mm. Yeah. And so through that, thinking through this land and my own personal whakapapa, which it comes from migrants from Ireland and Scotland, um, but also through my Māori whakapapa, which is from the East Coast, so, Rongafakata, Te Aitanga A, Mahaki, Ngati Rua Pani, among others, but generally that kind of eastern, that eastern crew of Iwi. So, did you do field recordings in that specific location? Is the is there a kind of a really direct relationship between that particular whakapapa, that particular land, that particular whenua, and what we hear in the work? Um, I, in the process, because um, it was over a couple of years, um, and we, I guess we'll get onto a bit later because it was mm. really uh, attached to uh, some PhD research as well, that I did do field recordings there, but I didn't use the actual recordings. That was one case where um, it was I sort of interpreted the data. Um, I didn't want it to be, I mean, even though I did go to these specific places, the idea was really around uh, an idea of the youth. Mm-hmm. An idea of the you know, of papatuanuku, of you know, of the earth as a kind of an entity, rather than focusing on uh, any specific places. Uh, but yes, I did take field recordings from that place, and um, and didn't use those specific field recordings, but uh, interpreted them into textures. <laughs> One of the things I've always loved about your work is the way that you just so carefully bring together these, I guess, two ontologies, the, the Māori way of knowing the world and being a part of the world with some of the Western ontologies of knowing the world and being a part of the world. Mm. And, you know, for a long time, I think our Western thought is focused on a different set of knowing, which is about being separate to and away from. And I think one of the things that I love so much about being in your work is experiencing that that coming together of different ways of knowing and the way that that is found within ecological traditions, the way that it's found within practices of deep listening, practices of acoustic ecology, that you're really quietly and carefully sort of opening a space for us to experience different ways of knowing. Yeah, that's right. There's traditions, you know, that are parallel are different, but parallel, perhaps, mm. you know, Māori ways of being connected, you know, through mm. whakapapa actually being kind of connected uh, to the earth. Uh, but that, that's right. There are traditions through West, you know, through Western uh, frameworks that have explored exactly that over time. Yeah, and um, yeah, specifically uh, deep listening 
Pauline Oliveros's approach to deep listening, uh, deep ecologies, and mm. uh, which has kind of come around in various ways through Western frameworks. Yeah, and acoustic ecology, of course, the seventies um, movement um, <laughs> that was about field recording and, yeah, exactly. and and listening to the earth and documenting that. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit because you've introduced the phrase about deep listening because it's a phrase that's used a bit. Um, is this a deep listening project? Uh, it is a deep listening project. Um, I was thinking about Pauline Oliveros and that she has that lovely line, uh, listen, listen to everything um, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> that's not exactly it. I'm paraphrasing, but yeah. that, that's pretty much the idea of it. Just listen to everything all the time. And her deep listening, because I think there are, you know, there's, there's a deep listening perhaps involved in kind of like, psychology and interpersonal relationships, which is something else. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. specifically Pauline Oliveros's um, project of deep listening, um, it was kind of like you can listen with your whole body. So that mm-hmm. was kind of one of her things. Um, and that made me think of the word whakarongo. You know, mm-hmm. so whakarongo is not just to listen with your ears, but it's to perceive and sense. Pretty much with all your senses, I understand, uh, uh, except for your eyes. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, and so this is what Pauline Oliveros talked about and would have these exercises about deep listening. So listening with your feet, listening with your body. And so it was listening with your body, but also um, really attending to your time and place. Mm-hmm. And she was quite political, you know, as, a, as a, a queer artist coming out, you know, and working um, during her time. Um, so through the you know fifties, sixties, seventies, and so she was really about attending to your time and place and listening. And mm-hmm. so that this listening is also not just to you know we're sensing not just through our body, um, but all those things that attend to it. So ideas um, could be kind of political issues as well. So it's kind of listening as activism as well. And so I thought that was really. Um, yeah, relevant to what I was wanting to do with this work and listening to these different histories through myself, my personal histories, through Te Ao Māori and Te Ao Pākehā and listening to the earth and everything that's related to that in terms of our colonial past, in terms of our, um, you know, ecology. So one of the things that people really notice with the work, sort of the first thing they notice, is that the space is dark. (laughs) So that it, and so that it's a space where we and when you walk into it, you're immediately attuned to something else. You're attuned to your body. You're attuned to the sound, and you have to, in many ways, learn to navigate the space without your eyes. Mm. You have to navigate it in a different way. Um, sometimes the the work kind of echoes through the whole gallery mm. and calls you in. Mm. But then once you're in the space, you're immersed in it without any visual clues. Yeah. And you, so you, you sort of have the sense of um, listening with your whole body. But one of the things that people have said to me about their experience of the work is it's not just listening. It's a space for kind of being as well, which I think is um, really connected to that, you know, the original sort of um, notion of resonance, you know, resonance mm. is about kind of being in, I guess, a space of energy. Mm. Um, it feels a very energetic work. Um, and we've sort of t- 
talked previously about kind of sound and sound energies. Mm. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about how those kind of concepts inform the work as well? Yeah, so a sound is energy, uh, sound is materiality, um, a sound being a um, the emissions from the movements of the material world. Yeah, so they alert us to energetic shifts. I mean, sound sound is energy in itself, but it's that ex- energetic exchange. So, um, material shifts of which I'm referring to in the work uh, of the fenua of the earth, mm-hmm. and the sound that uh, results from that. And in many ways, there's some imagined processes, uh, but based on real data and real movements. Um, and that in, energetic, that listening, I mean, and of course, we could include uh, the, the electrics, the, the digital information that's projected out of those speakers, the information that we um, absorb, but also how we transform that into thinking, into ideas, into understandings, and how those thoughts might somehow affect what you do or what you think that might potentially have uh, further effects. Mm. So you talked about Pauline Oliveros being activist, um, or it's kind of being an activist practice, mm. but activist in the sense of making us aware that we need to take action, that we need to participate in and be attuned to the world around us. Mm. Do you think of this also as an activist work? Um, I think it is in its own quiet way. Mm. I think you kind of have to, you know, it's it's that whole thing of that being in that space and, and listening and then it's where do your thoughts take you. Yeah. So I guess I've kind of got some pointers, some nudges about what I was thinking about with the work, um, but it's definitely up to the, the listener mm. um, to take and interpret what they, you know, what they want. A lot of people are coming into the work and feeling very grounded in it mm. that it's a it is less of a questioning space than a grounding space which i mm. think is um really interesting um we've talked a little bit about this experience of deep listening um the other thing about the room is though that it's never totally silent mm. that there's never any silence um but it feels active the whole time. Do you mm. want to talk about that that relationship with sound, not sound, silence, how that comes into this way of thinking the earth as well? Yeah, I'm, I guess there's that, um, you know, famously, I guess within, you know, sound discourse is that there is no silence. Mm. <laughs> um, and John Cage, you know, the... American composer, musician who talked about, did quite a lot around silence. He had his famous work, you know, 4 Minutes 33, which, um, you know, people came into the concert hall and listened and, you know, the performer didn't perform. Everyone listened to just the space. And so from that, uh, this kind of in academic circles anyway, that conversation about silence never existing. And I guess we can experience that as well wherever we are, if we're listening to a space you know, silence doesn't exist. It's always a reflection of, uh, you know, our material circumstances as to what we're listening to. How does how does silence operate in this work? Because I think it's slightly different to John Cage's silence. Yeah. 
How does silence operate in this work? Um, so in that particular space, there's a room hum <laughs> that needs to work in with the work. There's not a lot of silence in the work, actually. Um, there's... There's parts where the um, sound goes down a bit and it's a little bit quieter, or there might be a pause between sequences. But silence allows the listener, I guess, to kind of retune their ears before the next sequence of sounds. Mm -hmm. So when making the work, I wasn't really specifically thinking about... um, I mean, I I was definitely aware that... needed to be a pause, you know, a, a kind of a rest from listening because listening is, you have to be quite active if you're really listening rather than passive listening. Um, and that can be quite tiring, so you need a little pause. Um, so that's, there's the little space in there to listen to the actual room, perhaps to reconnect to what the sounds are in that particular room. Um. So you composed it, you started to talk about this a little bit. It is a composed sequence. It's composed, as I understand, in four movements that are played over eight channels. Yeah. And as you move around the space of the room, you can recognize those channels, but you can't necessarily see them. So you recognize them through hearing them um, Mm. and recognize the movement through the space. Um, There's a lot of kind of a sense of recitation, of incantation, of that there's this um, bringing into being that's happening Mm. through that that sequence. Do you want to talk a little bit about composition and how it is composed and the sequence that occurs? Yeah, absolutely. Before I move into that, I just want to kind of tie it to a little story that just came at the start of the work. And what really, one of the things that brought the whole idea of the work into being. So um, I met a woman, Rangitunua Black, and I talked to her um, about... Uh, or just to know, one of my tipuna, her name is Ani Rangi Tunoa. So it was like, oh, you got the same name, Rangi Tunoa. And we had a conversation from that. Now, Rangi Tunoa Black is also a uh, composer and poet. And uh, we talked about making sound. And I, I, and I talked to her about how um, I made um, I spaces with sound textures. And... And she talked to me about, she said, oh, I have something for you, and talked about um, a, a dream of hearing patu um, paerehi. And they were singing, and the sounds of the, the the song sounded like greenstone becoming crystal, painamu becoming crystal. <clears throat> and so that idea of that material transformation, about what that meant... Um, was was a sort of a, a, a an idea, a sound, an imagined sound that I used throughout the work. I was thinking, what is what does that sound like? That transition from ponamu to crystal. So that is um, an imagined sound that features within the work. I think for everyone, they would imagine that differently. But for me, that sound was just like 
it's like it's ringing in my ears. <laughs> and when I was thinking about the contexts of that conversation as well in terms of the name of my tipuna and um, the conversation that we had, this is what brought all these other aspects of whakapapa into the work and listening to that Pānaumu becoming crystal. Um, listening to that sound for me was also listening to that whakapapa as well. So coming back to that structure or the composition, yeah. So I had been thinking about whakapapa as a, as a compositional tool, as a way to kind of read and tell space. I'd done a number of um, site-specific sound installations, and part of that was going to that site and learning about the histories, the layers of histories, the whakapapa of that particular site, and then using whakapapa, the idea of whakapapa as a compositional tool, of a kind of a layering of different stories. Um, with this particular work, um, but often, often with these site-specific installations, really, really having to um, collaborate with the environment, yeah, so that the sound is really working with what's there. Um, and, and I really enjoyed that exercise. But for the but with this work, I really wanted to have a kind of a. Um, a a, a suspended space, I guess, you know, listening in te war, you know, there is, it's, I mean, it's always going to be connected to the context of the gallery, you can't get away from all these different contexts, uh, but in terms of a listening experience and what I could put in there, um, I wanted to have free reign over what that listening experience could be, control. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, when I was thinking about that work, I wanted it to be a kind of a, um, uh, I guess the, it, it's those kind of layers, I guess, of telling a story um, that I was just talking about, that, that idea of kind of whakapapa as a compositional tool, um, but also a, a kind of a, a incantation, I guess, a, a, almost a, a form of karakia to the earth, a, a, Incantation, a repetitive incantation, um, of which you know uh, forms of you know forms of recitation of whakapapa and there's lots of different um, you know nuances to that um, that I can't talk about um, in a lot of detail, um, but a, a form of recitation. When you talk about layers, I can't help but think about geological layers as well and strata. And um, within the sequence is this moment that feels like some kind of earthquake sequence or some kind of huge, um, huge transformation mm. that's occurring inside the space or inside the, um, the environment that you've conjured up for us. Mm. And is there a, were you think, also thinking geological space were you thinking absolutely no very much so um so it's so thinking about whakapapa but also moving through those layers through moving through those geological layers as well i was thinking about plates movement and mm. uh yeah Se separation of uh gondwana land i was thinking mm. of um yeah just Mineral transformation, the ponamu becoming crystal, but also, you know, the there's kind of these water, very intense water sequences, mm. and those forces um, that also create ponamu as well, um, and that idea of uh, I guess a precious element 
yeah. of the earth. So definitely all those ideas kind of going back and forth, but that strata, geological strata, definitely being part of that. And I guess that's where, where I'm thinking about crossing across, um, crossing Western frameworks of knowledge and also Māori frameworks of knowledge. And is this where that, um, where you start touching on notions of materiality as they're discussed in kind of contemporary Western thought? And, you know, a lot of people are um, trying to, I guess, give us a sense of the materiality of the planet as a, way, a form of connection, as a form of caring, you know, if we can recognise and understand these materialities, we can care for this space. We can understand our relationships with the planet um, and also understand those relationships in time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, the, the whole post post-humanism, sorry. And, of course, lots of these ideas have been in Indigenous knowledge frameworks, mm. you know, forever um, but also it's making those connections between those absolutely mm. there's very much a sense that western thought is only just catching up with some of these ideas um, you know that they're they've been known and embodied and part of material practice for you know an extremely long time thousands of years um, the, you know the the so-called enlightenment was a period of thought i always think we're Western thought kind of just, I don't know, stepped away from those ways of knowing for a period of time. And it, it's how we begin to understand these ideas again, I guess. That's right. Remember them, how to remember yeah. them, because yeah. <laughs> that's right. They went away for a while. But also in looking at some of those practices, you know, as in kind of like the deep listening and the deep ecologists and, mm. you know, actually there's been threads of that that have survived. And, yeah. um, you know, throughout even all that period of enlightenment, there were always those kind of connected, you know, connected thinking I guess mm. it's all about that connected thinking, isn't it? And that mm. responsibility that comes from understanding that, um, you know, the youth is not separate, that we are um, part of it, you know, mm. an extension of it. And there's this great moment in the sequence where that extends beyond just thinking about humans and planet to include other species as well. Like we've, mm. we've talked about um, water, ponamu, geological strata, but... I also have a sense that um, animals and plants and things are also present within the work. Mm. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about how those kinds of presen presences within the work? I think about the work, I think about it on a level of um, bones. Mm-hmm. And that idea that at some point in history, and I'm thinking of um, for anyone who, um, you know, is into their, um, you know, new materialism, Manuel de Landa has that lovely book, A Thousand Years of mm. Nonlinear History. And he talks about how at some point fleshy matter um, kind of mineralized and created bone. And that is the part of us that um, will, you know, fossilize as well. So this kind of connection, I guess, with um, stone and and bone. And so I, I guess I was thinking about that in terms of where we are mm -hmm. physically within the sounds. 
that we're this kind of, you know, all this kind of stone and water and these sounds that you can hear within the work, um, that that we are in that as a, you know, other life form. Yeah, and, you know, the, the, the things that we think of as separate to us in terms of rocks are, were, are themselves living in different, configurations just on a different kind of time scale right it's absolutely just, we're just yeah human thought is always so trapped into a human time scale yeah and I think one of the things that your work does for us is open up much longer time scales um ways yeah. of thinking and being that slow us down that kind of open up the um the space for understanding the planet not right not just as right now but also as mm. um you know bringing all of that time and placing it in front of us and kind of in some ways giving us a direction forward as well i've been thinking about this kind of way of how as artists or writers we we show our concern the um for the planet at the moment um for you know, some of the transformations that are happening that are um, disturbing and worrying and upsetting and um, pointing towards other kinds of futures. And I wanted to ask you how those kinds of ideas um, come through in the work for you or even in your practice more generally. Um, It's, it's a difficult one because I guess as an artist, there's always, um, you know, I mean, obviously with COVID, you know, it's the arts are really suffering because, you know, that's all the money gets taken out. It's not essential, you know, not essential to survival. <laughs> and, um, but in terms of what, you know, real kind of practical activism, um, I guess what's needed is that really systemic change and the thinking can the can the artworks help you know contribute to that change i'm not sure what people you know how how can we get into kind of listen to the artworks or consider them i don't know are the people that are coming to experience the work people that are thinking along those lines anyway I mean, these are all the, I don't know, you know, if artists that are, uh, you know, always second-guessing themselves in terms of these types of questions. Because often, um, I mean, I think about certain artworks that I might have been really affected by or um, they kind of get me thinking about things and the artist will probably never know. (laughs) 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 That's the effect that they've had. Yeah, but that's why they're so essential. That's why I would make the exact opposite argument of the one that, you know, says, you know, the arts is things that we can put to the side at the moment. I would say the opposite. Yeah, no, totally. I, I would say that these are the things that we need to be able to think through the environment, to be able to think through our current context, mm. that um, we need works like yours to to actually give us a space to be able to process um, as well as understand what it is you know what the the work is doing itself i think there's an incredible generosity in your work to give a listener the space to spend time and really start to think some of these things through so i would absolutely argue for the essential nature of these works um yeah 
Oh, that's oh, that's really nice to hear. I think it's just always as an artist, it's. Um, I mean, I think you know. I mean, obviously, if there was, if we didn't have art and music, what a sad, what a sad world. <laughs> but also that it allows us to kind of think on a different level as well, and to think through these things at a different level. And yeah, and I, you know, I hope that it contributes to the systemic change that we need. Mm. I think it gives us space. You know, it's it's back to the title. It's like it gives us space to listen to the earth and to listen to how yeah. it resounds um, and to listen to ourselves within that. Yeah. I mean, I think going through that whole process, it's, you know, at the end of, of actually thinking through the work and I don't come out with any, you know, any specific answers, but really just the question, you know, if we listen closely to the earth, what do we hear? Mm. And for me, I hear papa. I hear connection. And then it's really up to the listener to find what they hear in that. And so that is what the work offers, is basically that question. Thank you for listening to Courtesy Of. You can find out more about the Adam Art Gallery's exhibition programme and discover the Victoria University of Wellington's art collection at www.adamartgallery.org.nz.